is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. A quick note Blessed Are the Peacemakers is the final episode of the first season of Hinter Tales. But never fear, I will be back with an entirely new season in September. If you'd like to be notified of new episodes, email me at racheldm at shaw.ca. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-D-M at S-H-A-W dot C-A. And I would be delighted to add you to my email list. Since this will be my last episode for a few months, I've decided to end with a story that is particularly close to my heart. During the school year of 2001-2002, my husband Byrne and I and our then three daughters had the opportunity to live in Northern Ireland while Byrne participated in a teaching exchange. Now, our intention originally was not to take our young family into a hotbed of unrest. When we'd originally begun corresponding with Byrne's prospective exchange partner, she told us only that she lived in Ballycastle, Ireland. As a Catholic nationalist, which I'll explain a little further in a moment, she left out the northern part of Northern Ireland. As it happens, there are two Ballycastles, a village in County Mayo in the south, in the Republic of Ireland, and a larger community in Northern Ireland, which is officially part of the United Kingdom. In the beginning, we thought we were discussing an exchange with a teacher who lived in the south, where things were quite peaceful. It was a few weeks in before we realized that we were actually discussing an exchange to Northern Ireland, where things had decidedly not been peaceful for almost three decades. But not to worry, our exchange partner assured us, the troubles were officially over as of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Fair enough, we thought, and so... Already invested by this point, we agreed to take the plunge. The troubles may have been officially over as of 1998, but the violence and division and bomb threats still lingered on, albeit to a lesser extent. The night of our arrival in Ballycastle in August of 2001 we watched rather anxiously as a small convoy of armored vehicles rolled past our cul-de-sac on their way to respond to some unrest in a subsidized housing estate a few blocks over. The next morning, we set out on foot to attend a large fair at the center of town, only to be turned back at a military checkpoint. The area had been evacuated as the result of a car bomb, which fortunately had been called in before it could explode and harm anyone. Our entire year continued in that vein. 
with various similar incidents all over the North. But despite the tension that remained in the air, we had an amazing year. The people of Northern Ireland are known for their hospitality, and we were welcomed warmly by our neighbours from both the Protestant and Catholic communities. But it was the stories that our new friends told that particularly moved us, stories of suffering and loss, of injustice and discrimination from the opposite community, and sometimes banishment from their own when they tried to be peacemakers. The troubles had left deep scars. No one had been untouched. I wish that I could tell you all the stories we heard that year. I wish that I'd had the foresight to record the details of these important personal histories. What I can do is share a story that I learned much later. The story of an ordinary man named Gordon Wilson, who responded to the tragedy and violence of that time in a most extraordinary way. The Troubles officially began during the late 1960s, with civil rights protests to end discrimination against the nationalist minority, who mostly identified as Catholic, by the Unionist majority, who mostly identified as Protestant. It quickly escalated into violence between the two communities, with armed paramilitary groups forming on both sides of the divide. But Gordon Wilson's story starts long before the Troubles. Gordon was a Protestant Unionist, but unlike many of his peers, he did not have a grudge against his Catholic neighbors. In fact, his early life had set him up for a very different perspective. He was born just south of the border in the Republic of Ireland, spent a happy childhood attending a school that was 95% Catholic, and went on to study in Dublin, the capital of Ireland. He was most at home in his own Methodist church, but he occasionally attended other services, including Catholic ones, and he said that he always felt God's presence wherever he was. In 1945, when Gordon was 18, his parents decided to leave the Republic and move to Northern Ireland, likely so their children would have more Protestant companions to choose from as they reached marrying age. Mixed marriages were not seen as a good thing. The Wilsons purchased a draper's shop in the town of Enniskillen. For those of us who aren't Irish, a draper's shop is where you would buy fabric and sewing supplies and clothing. It was only when Gordon joined his parents that he began to experience the division and animosity that could exist between the two communities. While Catholics in general were a minority in Northern Ireland at that time, Enniskillen itself was split roughly 50-50. Working behind the counter in the family store put Gordon on the cutting edge of this divide. His parents had purchased the shop from Catholic owners, and its 20 original employees were all Catholic as well, as were its original customers. In fact, it caused quite a sensation that a Catholic business had been sold to Protestants. But by taking care 
to be respectful to members of both communities, the Wilson family was able to retain the loyalty of its existing Catholic customers and to attract new Protestant ones. This was quite an accomplishment. At best, relations between the two communities were carefully polite and courteous, but mutual distrust and suspicion were never far beneath the surface. At times, the division could be almost comical. The store sold heavy lambswool underwear for men, but it was made in England and featured a Union Jack on the label, and so many of this store's Catholic customers refused to buy it. When the English manufacturer went out of business, the Wilsons found a new supplier near Dublin, but now the label said, made in the Irish Republic, which of course meant that many Protestant customers boycotted it. Like his father before him, Gordon was always very careful not to rock the boat. He knew that his Catholic customers were wary because he was Protestant, and that even his Protestant customers might not trust him completely because he was raised in the Republic with Catholics. And so he did his best to stay out of politics and not to offend anyone. When he was 28, Gordon married a young teacher and pianist named Joan Watson. They had four children in total, Peter, Richard, Julianne, and Mary, although Richard was born prematurely and only survived a few hours. Overall, life was good. Gordon took over the family shop, and it continued to be a success. The three surviving children were healthy and bright, and Gordon and Joan were both happy and active in their civic and church communities. But as the troubles simmered to the surface in the late 1960s, life for everyone in Northern Ireland began to change. The darkness that had been gathering first revealed itself to Gordon in the form of a Protestant loyalist march through the center of Enniskillen, right past Gordon's shop. Gordon watched in a kind of numb disbelief young men in pseudo-military uniforms and balaclavas over their heads, and at the front a man from Gordon's own church carrying a Bible like a weapon. Gordon felt so much revulsion that when the parade was passed, he retreated to one of the store's toilet stalls and was literally sick. Such events, of course, were just the beginning. One parade followed another. And then it wasn't just parades and demonstrations, but bombs and other acts of violence until, unbelievably, decades had passed and the Troubles had claimed thousands of lives. Understandably, many families chose to leave Northern Ireland during this period. Gordon and Joan considered starting fresh in Scotland, but in the end, Enniskillen was home, the center of everything and everyone they knew and loved, and so despite the continued carnage all over the North, they stayed. 
On the blustery morning of November 8, 1987, Gordon put on his dark overcoat and set out for the Cenotaph service, as he did every Remembrance Day. His youngest daughter, Mary, was home from the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast, where she was a nurse, and she accompanied him. Out of respect for the solemnity of the occasion, she wore a dark raincoat as well, but beneath the dark coat was a pink dress that better reflected her vibrant personality. While there were a number of Catholics present at the Cenotaph that morning, in Northern Ireland, Remembrance Day is largely seen as a Protestant event, and most of the people in attendance were from the Unionist or Protestant community. Gordon felt some anxiety as he approached the Cenotaph, not out of any premonition, but out of the habitual worry that every resident of Northern Ireland felt during that period, that he or she might end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Nevertheless, Gordon and Mary took their spots in front of an old community building about 40 feet from the Cenotaph, the same building that had given him shelter from the wind and rain every year for decades. But the building could not give him shelter that year. Unknown to the security forces, unknown to Gordon and Mary and all the people standing near them, the provisional IRA had planted a bomb inside it. When the blast went off at 10.43 that morning, Gordon turned and saw the stone wall behind him crack. It couldn't have been more than seconds, fractions of a second even, but he felt as if he was being pushed down in slow motion, with no sound at all, a strange vacuum, as the wall descended and buried him. He knew with certainty in that moment that his life was over. But then, as sound returned and the last of the debris trickled down, he realized that though he was buried beneath several feet of rubble, he was still very much alive. Mary was alive and conscious beside him as well, at least initially. She found her father's hand in the darkness and squeezed it. She assured him, repeatedly that she was fine, but between her words she would scream, whether in pain or terror, Gordon couldn't tell. Then suddenly her voice changed. She gripped her father's hand more tightly. Daddy, I love you very much, she said. And then she stopped speaking, and her hand slipped away. Gordon fainted and didn't regain consciousness until his rescuers dug him out of the rubble. He was taken to the local hospital, a scene of utter chaos, where he was treated for shock and a dislocated shoulder. It was some time before rescuers found Mary and brought her to the hospital, but she was unconscious, and so 
badly mangled that it was hours before they could identify her. In the end, by the pink dress she was wearing. Although the doctors fought desperately and gave her 24 pints of blood, they were unable to save her. She died without ever regaining consciousness, just five months short of her 21st birthday. The scene of shock and grief in the Wilsons' home that night was being repeated all over Enniskillen. Eleven people were dead and 64 injured. The entire community was reeling. Gordon Wilson was an ordinary man, a local shopkeeper, caught up in a horrific event. But his response to that horror was about to set him apart, to change the course of the rest of his life. Whether it had any effect on the course of history is still debatable, but many people believe it did. Members of the media began calling and arriving at the Wilsons' door almost immediately, and at other doors around Enniskillen as well. But the response that they got from Gordon that night caught them completely off guard. Despite his shock and pain, Gordon consented to an interview with a radio journalist working for BBC. In a voice raw with grief, he described his last moments with his youngest child. I have lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer. But I know there has to be a plan. If I didn't think that, I would commit suicide. It's part of a greater plan, and God is good, and we shall meet again. The next day, in a television interview, Gordon repeated his statement that he wished no ill towards the man who had planted the bomb. He further added, I prayed for them last night, sincerely, and I hope I get the grace to continue to do so. Gordon Wilson's words provoked an immediate response. Around the world, people were deeply moved. And closer to home, many Northern Irish residents still believe that Gordon's words saved lives. There was a deep sense of outrage on both sides of the community in the aftermath of Enniskillen, that civilians would be killed in the very act of remembering and paying homage to their dead, a sacred event. Many still believe that the Enniskillen bomb could have started a civil war if Gordon Wilson's words hadn't moved so many and offered an alternative to revenge and retribution. But Gordon did have critics from the very beginning other grieving families who weren't ready to move past their shock and their anger, members of the Unionist community who said that Gordon didn't have the right to forgive terrorists and murderers. 
Gordon's response was always that he spoke only for himself and told only his own story, one story of many from that horrific day in Enniskillen. He also clarified that praying for the bombers and wishing them no ill will was not the same as forgiving them. In his words, better men than me have wrestled with the concept of forgiveness and have failed. I believe that I do my very best in human terms to show forgiveness, but the last word rests with God. Those who seek his forgiveness will have to repent. At that level, such a judgment is way beyond me. Gordon gave his initial interviews out of a deeply ingrained sense of courtesy. As he told his biographer years later, he lacked experience with the media and naively believed that each interview would be the last. But as time passed and journalists kept returning, he began to believe that Mary's story needed to be told that he had been spared when so many people around him had died precisely so that he could tell her story. His daughter's last words had been words of love. Sharing her story with the world could be an act of love in itself, a way to stand against the violence that had claimed the lives of far too many others. It took some time for Gordon to heal from his injuries and to regain enough strength in the wake of his loss to fully engage in his new mission. But then he dove in. Joan understood his need to pour himself into peace campaigning and gave him her full support from the beginning. His surviving children, Peter and Julianne, preferred to grieve in private but they also understood how important their father's mission was to his healing. In the weeks and months and then years that followed, Gordon kept a grueling schedule, participating in media interviews, replying to letters from around the world, speaking in schools and churches and civic organizations, co-writing a book about his daughter, taking a place in the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, even accepting a seat in the Irish Senate down in Dublin, much to the dismay of many of his fellow Ulster Protestants. In March of 1993, four and a half years after the bombing, Gordon issued a public challenge to the IRA asking for a private meeting. The gesture received immediate condemnation from the Unionist community and even cost him several friendships. The IRA was an illegal terrorist organization, after all. But Gordon persisted, hopeful that he would be listened to, that terrorists or not, his story might have an impact on the flesh-and-blood human beings that made up the IRA. In April, the IRA accepted Gordon's challenge and made quiet arrangements to get Gordon to a secret location just across the border from Northern Ireland. The meeting began with an IRA statement 
offering sincere condolences and apologies for the death of Gordon's daughter, who, along with other innocent civilians, died as a result of one of their operations. But Gordon wanted so much more. He wanted assurances that they would abandon their campaign of violence. It was a naive request, of course, and he left the meeting feeling dispirited and frustrated. It seemed that nothing had changed as the result of their conversation. He was just another victim of violence to the IRA, and they remained prepared to take yet more lives in the pursuit of their mission. Naive or not, Gordon was still serving the cause of peace a year and a half later when he received a phone call notifying him that tragedy had struck his family again, this time in the form of a car accident that took the life of his 38-year-old son, Peter. It was a blow that Gordon never recovered from. When the funeral was over, he threw himself back into his work with an almost frenzied intensity, driving himself to the point of exhaustion. On the morning of June 27, 1995, six months after Peter's death, Gordon had a stroke and died in his bed. He was 67 years old. Gordon's funeral was packed with family, friends, neighbors, church leaders, politicians, including Irish President Mary Robinson, people from both sides of the border and both sides of the Northern Irish community came together to pay tribute to a man who had risen above political barriers to work tirelessly for peace. And just what was Gordon Wilson's legacy? While he did not live to see the Good Friday Peace Agreement in 1998, he was still alive when the IRA declared a ceasefire in August 1994, followed in turn in October by similar declarations from loyalist paramilitary groups. Gordon would be the last person to claim credit for these ceasefires, but there is no doubt that this ordinary shopkeeper contributed to them in his own small way, touching hearts, shifting minds, sowing seeds of peace, which would eventually bear fruit. My primary source for this episode was Alf McCreary's book, Gordon Wilson, An Ordinary Hero, published in 1996. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstanmuller.com. <laughs>